HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode of Meet and Three is brought to you by the Michigan Cherry Committee. Learn more about the wonderfully tart Montmorency cherry at choosecherries.com. This episode is brought to you by Square. If you run a restaurant or business, Square has the tools to help you stay connected to customers, shift your business, and navigate this uniquely challenging time. Learn more at square.com slash go slash meet. That's square.com slash go slash M-E-A-T. When you were a baby, we, um, we fed you food that was processed in the Happy Baby Food Grinder. And it was often bananas or baked sweet potato, very healthy kind of stuff. Sometimes I would sneak in some parsley because it's so nutritious. I would like put parsley in everything whenever I could because one child might not be eating vegetables that week, but um, parsley was good to sneak in there. And we never figured it out? Never. Until now I've just given away the secret, but now you can use it to like feed Wyatt. I'm Katie Mosman-Wadler, Executive Director of HRN, and that's my mom, Susan, talking about what she fed me as a baby. She recently came to visit me and my newborn, Wyatt, who can expect some parsley in his food very soon. I'm excited for my first Mother's Day as a mom, and even more excited to be back hosting Meet and 3 as I've just returned from maternity leave. Families across the country will be celebrating Mother's Day this weekend. Some over Zoom, and others in the homes in which they've been quarantined together for weeks. Without being able to go out for brunch or gather with relatives, many people will be showing their appreciation with a simple care package or a home-cooked meal. Although celebrations may be limited this year, today we're exploring the power of family-based recipes and the ways mothers inspire creativity in the kitchen all year round. This is Meat and Three. Meat and three. Meat and three. Meat and three. One meat, three sides. Food, news, and storytelling. A square meal for your ears. Meat and three. To start us off, Kevin Chang Barnum talks to a journalist who's been collecting family histories and recipes since 2017. The stories on the website Eat Darling Eat explore the complexities of what can be a very intense relationship, the one between mother and daughter. We sometimes jocularly say it it may be the most important relationship in a woman's life and you can't get a divorce. That's journalist Amy Lee Ball. She started Eat Darling Eat in 2017 
along with her friend, filmmaker Steve Baum. The site looks at mother-daughter relationships through the lens of food, an idea the pair developed over the course of a number of eating adventures in New York City. Amy and Steve now run Eat Darling Eat together, gathering stories from the perspectives of both mothers and daughters. One story, for instance, is about a woman getting ready to come out to her conservative mother during Thanksgiving. She was too nervous to eat her favorite pecan pie. She couldn't speak. Her throat was closed up because she knew what she had to say. Finally, she just blurted it out. She said to her mother, I'm gay. This is who I am. You have to accept me. And her mother looked at her and said, you know, I'm always going to love you. Now will you eat your damn pie? Eat Darling Eat shares these familial food tales alongside recipes. A recipe for pecan pie accompanies the previous story. We think of the website as as a kind of mosaic, almost like a like a Seurat painting with the little chunks all coming together to make one whole that really represents the world of women. To create that mosaic, Eat Darling Eat shares stories from a range of cultural backgrounds. We've had a story from a woman whose mother grew up in a Japanese internment camp in the Second World War and made soup out of tomato ketchup and water. We have one story uh, by a self-described wasp who writes that her mother served a lot of TV dinners and spam, but always with a cloth napkin and a silver napkin ring next to the plate. So you hear that, you know exactly who those people are. Entertaining as these stories often are, it isn't just readers who benefit from them. And we often hear that the storytellers themselves learn a lot. The act of storytelling itself is revelatory, even to the storyteller. And people discover that they're not angry anymore, (laughs) or that they can look at something with a sense of humor. Amy herself has contributed multiple stories. For me, it was looking back at who my mother was. I was the only child of older parents, and my mother had had a career, a business career, when she married my dad, and didn't know how to boil water. And my dad gave her a cookbook. I still have it. I still have the inscription in it. Um, It's called The Working Girl Must Eat, and his inscription says, Darling, you will not have an excuse anymore. Whether frustrating or touching, stories about food have a way of bringing us together with their universality. What we find is that whatever the experience is, it may be very different from your own experience, but it's going to resonate with a lot of women. To see Amy and Steve's website, you can go to eatdarlingeat.net. You'll find recipes, stories, and a page to make your own submissions. Stay tuned after the credits to hear Amy tell one of Eat Darling Eat's most heartbreaking stories. It's about a woman whose mother once worked a job with one requirement, must be gorgeous. Next, Katie Philo explores how one cookbook author has been influenced by her rich family history. On one very, very sultry day, and there are a lot of them in Saigon because it's a tropical place, we piled into our car with two small suitcases for a family of seven, and we went to the Notre Dame Cathedral in Saigon, and that's like a landmark building. 
and my aunt was inside meeting with this American man and we were waiting in the car and when she came out she gave a nod to my dad meaning that we had passage to America. Meet cookbook writer, teacher and consultant Andrea Nguyen. She spent the first six years of her life in Saigon, now known as Ho Chi Minh City. In 1975, with the Vietnam War worsening, her parents decided the family would leave to begin a new life in California. They escaped by plane just one week before the fall of Saigon, leaving everything behind but for a few prized possessions. My mom didn't know what we would be eating, and so in her very ladylike handbag, she had a couple of packages of instant noodles and a couple of bottles of water because she figured, well, you know, if she had to feed her family, at least she would have something that she could put together. There was one other very important item in that ladylike handbag. She also had a small orange notebook of handwritten recipes, because she figured, well, when she got to America, she could at least open up a restaurant and or cook the flavors that we would definitely miss, because she knew from having been displaced before that food gave you a sense of grounding. And it was very important during times of displacement and you feeling unsettled that that good food and flavors that you remember and have meaning for you will give you a better sense of who you are and that you can go on. As Andrea and her family settled into their new life in California, the orange notebook came to symbolize a kind of connection to both the past and present. There was a little cookie recipe in there that was like, it's like a biscuit type of French cookie. It was a cookie that, um, it was the first cookie I ever baked. And I did a terrible job, but I will always remember that recipe because it came from that little notebook. The youngest of five children, it was Andrea who showed promise as her mother's culinary apprentice. My mom could tell, because I was chubby, that I like to eat. And so she started me at a very young age um, helping her out in the kitchen. And so the first thing she taught me to do was to make rice. In her parents' kitchen, Andrea received a first-class training that was rooted in the disciplines and traditions her mother had learned in Vietnam. I grew up with this notion of her in the kitchen as being like a task mistress. So washing rice every day for our family meant that even though I had my back to her, she wanted to count me to count out how many times I had washed and rinsed the rice. It had to be like eight to ten times. And if I lowered my voice, she would say, I don't hear you. As Andrea grew older, she continued to cultivate her love for cooking. Despite completing a degree in banking, she decided to follow her passion, working in a series of restaurant and catering jobs, much to her parents' disappointment. I said to my parents, I'm going to go cook in a restaurant. And my mother was so angry. My father was so disappointed. Soon, however, her parents could see just how happy this decision made Andrea. By the time her first cookbook, Into the Vietnamese Kitchen, came out in 2006, her mother had become one of her biggest supporters. My mother started telling all of her girlfriends that they needed to gift Into the Vietnamese Kitchen to their daughters or daughter-in-laws as part of the dowry. And because my mom said, well, you're not going to tell them how to cook and you don't have things written down and here are the recipes and they're detailed and I use these recipes too and you should like be keeping this book in your family. The influence of Andrea's mother's cooking and the Orange Notebook can be seen in many of the recipes in her books. There is a Vietnamese beef stew 
called baka. And I have two versions of that recipe. The first version is a traditional version uh, made on the stove. And that recipe came out in 2006 in Into the Vietnamese Kitchen. And in my latest book, Vietnamese Food Any Day, I made that recipe in the pressure cooker. Many of her recipes, like this one, contain techniques that her mother showed her years ago. But it's the story of how they ended up in her family that particularly fascinates Andrea. That recipe goes back to 1954, when my mother was young and single, and she had just arrived in Saigon um, from northern Vietnam. And she said, I wanted to make that stew. I didn't know how, because it's a southern dish. And so she targeted this Chinese-Vietnamese colleague of hers at her work and befriended the woman and then got the recipe from her. That was how determined my mother is. And that recipe started out with her in 1954, came here to us with, in America in 1975, evolved into my cookbook in 2006, and now can be made in a pressure cooker, an instant pot, by a bunch of people in like, you know, about an hour. Not only has food played an important role in connecting Andrea to her mother's past, it's also been the foundation to a very special relationship. I don't have children, and so the way that my mother and I have developed a relationship is through food. And she describes the relationship as being a special relationship. And mind you, she does not discuss this with me. She discusses it with my husband. Because my mother is not a very emotional woman. This special relationship continues to blossom in the kitchen today, with Andrea being the only child of five who her mother trusts in her kitchen, unsupervised. Things have kind of shifted, I have to tell you. So when I go to my parents' house, I um, always offer to cook one meal for them. Um, And so my mom loves to sit perched on a stool in the kitchen and watch me cook. Andrea has now published six cookbooks, had her food writing appear in publications like the Washington Post and Wall Street Journal, and even been a clue on Jeopardy. Knowing her mother is proud of her, however, might just be the highest accolade of all. So my mom, you know, over time, most recently, and it's taken a long time, right, because that book came out in 2006. So last year, she said to me, I'm very proud of you. You are doing work that makes you happy. And... You know, that's coming from a woman who doesn't, she's not very emotional. And she said, you really help people. And that means a lot. And as for the fate of that precious orange notebook. And so that notebook started out in Vietnam, but then it became emblematic for my family of being Vietnamese American. And after I finished writing my first cookbook, Into the Vietnamese Kitchen, my mom gifted me that book, that little notebook, and I keep it in a safe place in my office. And she says to me, I don't need that anymore. I have my recipe box. If you want to find out more about Andrea, her books and cooking, visit her website, vietworldkitchen.com, where she invites you to dive in and explore Asian cooking and traditions. We'll be right back with more Meat and 3 after a short break. This episode of Meet and 3 is brought to you by the Michigan Cherry Committee. A cherry isn't just a cherry. When it comes to tart cherries, the wonderfully U.S.-grown Montmorency tart cherry variety is the cherry with more. They're available year-round, dried, frozen, canned, juice, and concentrate. 
U.S. Montmorency tart cherries are also one of America's superfruit, which means they're good for you. Tart cherries contain many antioxidants and beneficial phytonutrients, including anthocyanins, the pigments that give tart cherries their beautiful red color. And don't forget about flavor. U.S. Montmorency's unique sour-sweet profile makes them an excellent addition to yogurt, oatmeal, salads, trail mix, and of course, a classic cherry pie. Learn more about the wonderfully U.S.-grown Montmorency tart cherry at ChooseCherries.com. This episode is brought to you by Square. We all know that this is an incredibly challenging time for our friends running restaurants and small food businesses. With social distancing in place, people are staying home and eating in, and restaurants have had to pivot to pickup and delivery only. HRN would usually be recording our podcast from our studio inside Roberta's, but since they've had to close their dining room, they've ramped up their frozen pizza production, set up a wine and grocery shop, and seen their delivery orders skyrocket. Like Roberta's, many restaurants have been changing offerings day by day as they figure out how to best serve their customers. If you run a restaurant or small business, Square has the tools to help you adapt. One of these tools is the Square online store. It lets you set up a free online ordering page with curbside pickup and local delivery so you can keep customers safe. You can deliver orders yourself or integrate with delivery partners. Its order hub lets you manage all your incoming orders in one place, no matter which delivery partners you choose to use. Square has all the tools to help you stay connected to customers no matter where they are. See everything that's available by visiting square.com slash go slash meet. That's square.com slash go slash M-E-A-T. Way back in 2017, HRN produced a miniseries called Fresh Pickings about using whole grains and other everyday ingredients in unique ways for our partner Bob's Red Mill. Kat Johnson kicked off the series with a very special phone call. Hey, Mom. Hey, Kat. What's up? So I'm doing this podcast about old-fashioned oats, and I thought I would kick things off by talking about my favorite way to eat them. Do you know what I'm talking about? Um, oatmeal drop cookies? Yep. So we had these cookies um, a couple times a year, usually at the holidays. But why didn't you make them more often? They're so good. They are so good, but surprisingly, even though they're no-bake, they're a little bit tricky to make. You have to cook them on the stovetop, and you have to cook them long enough, but not too long, so that they'll dry, but they won't be too sticky. Gotcha. Where did you get that recipe from? Well, my mom used to make them when I was a little girl, and I think the recipe's been around for a long time, so I'm not really sure where she got it from, but she passed it down to me. You might have eaten a cookie similar to this when you were growing up. Edna Lewis and Scott Peacock helped popularize it in their cookbook, The Gift of Southern Cooking. There's just something about it that makes it perfect for parents and kids to make together. It doesn't take too long, it's mostly hands-on, and the peanut butter and chocolate flavors are a favorite of kids and adults alike. You might just have all the ingredients in your pantry right now, making it a no-brainer cookie to make for your mom this Mother's Day. For our final story, we explore the characteristics of another kind of mother. Whether you call it starter, culture, levan, or mother, this important first step in fermentation strongly shapes your final product, be it a loaf of bread or a batch of kombucha. To learn more, we turn to the host of Modernist Breadcrumbs, Jordan Werner Berry, 
in conversation with the show's executive producer, Michael Harlan Turkell. Michael is also the author of the IACP award-winning cookbook, Acid Trip, Travels in the World of Vinegar. He shares some takeaways about mothers relevant to bread bakers and vinegar makers alike. Mothers. Well, it's a really broad and misunderstood term in the realm of vinegar. Um, And being someone who's slightly proficient in bread baking and understand what a mother is cross-contextually in, in, the, in the world of fermentation, um, they all do different things. You know, uh, a sourdough starter is a culture that creates a, a flavor, and it's really place-based. That's why you have San Francisco sourdough, and it's cultivated in, in, in this way that it's, it's personal and uh, people have stories behind them, whereas vinegar mothers can be attributed to that as well, um, but I think there's a little BS there. This sounds like a hot take. What kind of BS are you talking about? You can buy vinegar mothers online. You can trade with people. But it's this thing that sometimes hyper accelerates a process that doesn't need to be sped up. Um, Same way that starters and sourdough kind of supercharge that fermentation. But vinegar mothers are like scobies and kombucha, this symbiotic colony of bacteria and yeast that floats on the top and looks very cool, like a skin-like layer. It's mainly cellulose um, that helps convert alcohol into acetic acid. But if there's too much mother, uh, it can suffocate the solution underneath. And I've been told to call that an umbrella mother. No, wait. I've been told to call that a helicopter mother. I didn't know that term up until I started touring the book. So vinegar does better with free-range parenting. So a mother's a really great indicator but it's not a necessity. It's something that tells you how quickly or how steadily the process of converting this alcohol into acetic acid is working. And again, like it's not, it's this weird preconcept that everyone thinks you need to dump it in. But when you put that in whatever culture you're trying to turn into vinegar, you're sometimes stripping away nuance and flavor and aroma and essence and, and really story. So do you feed a mother in vinegar the same way you do with a sourdough starter? I think it's the other way around, that a mother kind of feeds off whatever the substance is. You create a hospitable environment for a mother. I mean, talking about this from a, from a family hierarchy, uh, you know, kids drive their mothers crazy and likewise. But really, it's there to nurture or foster something along. And in vinegar, it's this protective layer. And... Once it becomes, you know, that that helicopter mother, you know, reaches the sides and kind of becomes overbearing and smothers what's underneath, that's when that substance underneath can't express itself. It's like if it really wanted to be in a grunge band, but its mother insisted it played classical violin. Why do we anthropomorphize these starters in both vinegar and in bread? What do we get out of giving them these human characteristics? I mean, I think we hope the end product to have some kind of personality. To learn more about microbes, niche, and mothers, listen to Episode 9 of Modernist Breadcrumbs on Heritage Radio Network. Special thanks this week to Kevin Chang-Barnum and Katie Philo. Meet and 3 is produced by Hannah Forden, Matt Patterson, Kat Johnson, Dylan Hoyer, and me, Katie Mosman-Wadler. Our audio engineer is Matt Patterson. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. 
This program is supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. Meet and 3 is powered by Simplecast. Meet and 3 is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio. And please stay in touch. Whether you have a story idea or would just like to say hey, write us at ideas at meetand3.nyc. That's all spelled out. I remember a story that we got called Must Be Gorgeous. And it was about a mom who had been a cigarette girl at the Drake Hotel in, I guess, the 1950s. And she was so beautiful that that must be gorgeous was what the ad for the cigarette girl physician said. And people stared at her because she was so beautiful with a great blonde beehive hairdo. And now she's in an assisted care facility with dementia. And her daughter goes to pick her up and visit with her and take her out to a restaurant. And the mom will sometimes pick up a piece of fish with her hands and gnaw at it or open one of those little packages of jelly that you get with your ham and eggs at a coffee shop and just lick it out of the little container. And people stare at her now, but for a different reason.